Hey, it is good to see you all here. You know what? I've never done this before, but this this week on Facebook, I made the sickest video I've ever made. Some of you know that, right? Those of you on social media, I did one of those boomerangs with those really short videos that rotate over and over, except I waved like this. And so many of you told me you were, you were threatening to like hide me from your news feed because it was such an awful video. We're going to do it again. So um, this is how it's going to go. I want you all to wave. Okay? Can we do that? Wave to me. Wave to me. Wave to me. Okay. That's going to make you sick for the rest of the week. But, but just so that, you know, we can post something nice, I'm going to take an actual photo of you, okay? And, and we'll, I'm going to stand back here. Okay, where am I? I'm in Crescent. I can't stand back there because the music stands in the way. All right. Friends, say hi. Say cheese. Yes. Oh, yes. You're so beautiful. Great to see you all. My name is Tom, one of the pastors here, and it's, it's my privilege to jump in to our Ephesians series, which Dana has, has really been uh, curating this whole series this summer, which I'm really thrilled about, and uh, she's going to let me preach some of the Ephesians series. We had quite a debate over the ones she was not willing to give up to me over the, <laughs> over the summer. I'm really excited about this series, and, and uh, I don't know about you, but I missed a few, so I caught up online. Did you know you could do that? You know, you come to the website, catch up online. I know some of you, some of you do that, and uh, I encourage you to do that. If you miss some over the summer, which of course uh, many of us will, with with holidays and travel and family stuff and all that going on, get online, catch up, so we can travel together through the series in Ephesians. If you have a a phone that downloads, you can subscribe through iTunes and have uh, the messages delivered directly to your phone, which is pretty handy. We're really exploring this series in Ephesians and letting God's perspective reshape our thinking so that as our thinking is reshaped, then the way that we live is reshaped. Now, we've had some booklets produced. How many of you can wave the booklets that we've been offering this summer? If you don't have one of those booklets, uh, we have more booklets available. Dana has a few right here. So put up your hand. It's the text of Ephesians, but given with a lot more space in it, like uh, space to, to doodle, artwork, you know, which a lot of you really appreciate. And, uh, and then uh, to make notes, but it's the New, Revi- uh, New Revised Standard Version, one of the translations. We throw a lot of translations around here. Um, one translation that's available, and it's in that booklet. Giselle needs one back for the sound booth to there, there, Dana. That's great. Awesome. Hey, this week I heard a great story I wanted to share with you as we started. The story was told by Erasmus. He was one of the Renaissance scholars. He was responsible, actually, for giving us the Greek New Testament, uh, kind of uh, really restoring good Bible translation to us. Anyway, he told this story. It's kind of a mythical tale to illustrate a point. This is the story he told. He said, after Jesus had gone up to heaven, after his earthly ministry, all the angels gathered around Jesus to ask him how it went. Well, he had a lot of stories to tell, right? So he's telling them about healings and about people he met and places he went. And, and he's telling them all the wonderful things that his father had done through him and, and, and all the things that had happened. And, of course, his death and, and then his resurrection and, 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 and all that. And then, and, and, and then Michael kind of paused. Michael the archangel paused and, and said to, to Jesus, oh, okay, so, like, what happens now? And Jesus said, oh, no problem. I left 11 guys behind. 
faithful, faithful men who are going to, you know, teach, teach, you know, share my teaching and, and show God's love. And, and from there, you know, more people will, will gather and follow me. Michael kind of pauses because, as you can imagine, he's seen a few humans. <laughs> he says, uh, okay, Jesus, so what if that doesn't work? What then? To which Jesus responded, oh, there is no what then. That's the only plan I have. That's the only plan I have. The church. Friends, that may seem crazy to you, but God's big dream, his big dream to make the world right again, to bring reconciliation between warring factions, to to restore the broken and to heal the hurting, God's big dream that people would no longer take up guns and bomb one another, but would actually, you know, as it were depicted in one of the old prophets, take their weapons of war and beat them into garden tools. In order for that vision to be true, God has decided to use the church, that this dream is somehow dependent on the band of followers that Jesus amassed and then gave his Holy Spirit to to continue to do his work. Does that seem a bit nuts to you? I mean, have you looked around at the church lately? (laughs) It seems like the church is increasingly fragmented, that there are more and more divisions. I mean, if you just look on the global or historical scale, we've got the big three. We've got the the Catholics, and we've got the Orthodox, and we've got the Protestants. That's enough division just to go around. But then if you dive deep into, frankly, any one of those categories, but let's dive deep into the one that we're part of, the Protestants. My goodness, it just gets weirder and weirder the deeper you go. It's like there's thousands and thousands of different variations, and quite frankly, down through history and even today, a lot of those different variations don't even talk to one another. In fact, they don't even consider each other Christian brothers and sisters half the time. There's divisions, there's debate, there's argument. There's different ethnicities within that, different historical traditions within that, different theologies within that, but there's a whole lot of division. If you look uh, a little more deeply into it, you might see conservatives, you might see liberals, you might see evangelicals, you might see fundamentalists, you might see weird stuff that makes you kind of want to step back and say, really, they're part of our family? On a local level, you can see that where we have different churches, different styles. And sometimes there's good relationships and sometimes those relationships are tense. We're not too sure about those guys over there on that corner in that building. Like, are they really Christians or not? We're not sure if they're part of the family. We've got some debate with them. We might not know what it is, but, you know, somehow it must not be part of us. And then even within a a local congregation, there can be division. There can be strain. There can be old hurt that's never been resolved. Maybe because the person who was hurt never actually told the person that they got hurt. Like they never actually let on to anybody that they were holding this thing from like 15 years ago. Other times it's because people have never been challenged on areas of character in their life that have been hurting others. Sometimes it's because of a of, 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 of bitterness that's been held on to. Sometimes there is theological differences, but infighting, right? In one single congregation, that can be true. Well, how can God reconcile all things in Christ through the church with a body that's so fragmented. It seems like a lot to ask. 
It seems, frankly, a little ridiculous. And yet, and yet, that is God's plan. Like, that's what God said he's up to. How's this going to happen? Well, the short form is it's going to happen as God's people actually begin to live worthy of the calling that they received, which is the theme of our whole series, a verse taken right out of Ephesians, worthy of the calling that we received to be the body of Christ, the reconciled body of Christ here on earth, offering hope and healing and forgiveness and reconciliation through our life and through our community. And as we've been hearing so far in the Ephesians study, Paul, the writer of this original letter, has been helping Christians shift their worldview. Because, you see, Paul knows how we normally think. It doesn't matter whether you're first century or whether you're here in the 21st century. Paul knows that it's very easy for us to be swept up in the world's current about how we think about ourselves, how we think about God, how we think about each other or other people or other, you know, Christians or how we think about maybe the future or the present or how we should live and how all that thinking affects then how we live or how he's called us to live. And so Paul's been casting this really big vision, this this vision of all that Jesus has done and how we've been caught up in God's plan. That even though we were dead in our sins, you know, floating face down in the river, we were somehow made alive in Christ. That just how God raised Christ from the dead, he has now raised us from the dead. And, and it says it seated us in heavenly place with him, which is another way of saying we've been, we've been positionally put into a place of, of authority alongside Jesus to, to be part of the Father's plan to reconcile this world back to him. And he's done this, it says, so that God could showcase his amazing grace. So that you can look around and go, wow, God is gracious. I mean, that guy's here. No, actually it's to say, wow, God is gracious. I'm here. Wow. Look at what God has done in my life, in our lives. Look at the, look at the hearts that are being mended. Look at the, look at the people that are returning. Look at, that, look at that woman who I never would have imagined would discover life in Christ, and now she's following him. That's God's amazing grace, and God wants to showcase that through his people. The last section that Dana did just before, you know, a couple of weeks ago now, um, from Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are God's masterpieces. I think it's another translation. I think the NRSV says we are what he has made us. We are his masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And it emphasizes how, you know, we didn't save ourselves by our good works, but we were saved for good works. Because of what Jesus has done, we can get on and do what he's called us to do. Well, what difference does that make for us? And that's where we're going today. In order to really understand what difference it makes, we first have to understand what difference it has made, what difference it's made in our lives. We have to first remember where we've come from. We're diving in, verse 11 of chapter 2. You can follow along in your booklets or on your phone or a Bible. There's a few uh, in the seats in front of you as well. Here it starts, verse 11. So then, sometimes I should say, therefore, so based on everything Paul has already said about the grace of God and rescuing us and bringing us into the family, all that stuff. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called, quote, the uncircumcision, end quote, by those who are called, quote, 
the circumcision, end quote, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Pause. We need to pause for a moment here. We need some context for this because that's weird stuff. Especially for those of us who are just exploring faith and maybe this is the first real dip into the Bible we've ever taken, okay? Weird stuff. Let's just name it. It's strange. Okay, so context. Remember, Paul sending out this circular letter. We know it's circular because most of the early versions of Ephesians don't actually name Ephesus, right at the very start of the book. Okay? So it's this, this circular letter that Paul wrote, him and some of his, his um, buddies wrote, and it was, it was sent from church to church, and, and eventually it got tagged with Ephesians, inserted into it. Um, but, but it's this circular letter to a region where the Christians were primarily non-Jewish. Gentiles, they called them. That's what the Jewish people called them. And what Paul does here is he, he recalls for them, recalls their awareness, a fundamental distinction between them and God's original people. And he does that by pointing out the, the big sign, the circumcision sign of the old covenant people of God, the people of Israel. Something that these uh, non-Jewish, Gentile, you know, whoever they're from, wouldn't have, wouldn't have known, wouldn't have been part of that. And what he points out is this is a fundamental distinction that they had been told uh, if they had any, any interaction with the Jewish people, told that it kept them outside the covenant. And in fact, there were groups within the early church, we're going to come to this a little later, who would, who would try to reinforce that division and say, no, no, we're still part of the circumcision. You're part of the uncircumcision. We know you've got Jesus now, but there's still a big divide between us. And, and, and so there's this distinction made. And Paul's reminding them of a time when they were you know, part of that group, which, by the way, was a real barrier to coming to know the, the, God. Because, you know, those of you who have struggled with being baptized, guys, I'm talking to you, just imagine having to realize that coming to follow the God, Yahweh, involved a little snippage. That was a lot harder. And as a result, actually, as we see in Acts, many of the God-fearing women, so the the, the, the faith, uh, the Jewish faith would take root often in women's lives, uh, a little more often than it would in men's lives, and there are reasons for that. Okay. Too much information, perhaps, but now you understand, this is a fundamental distinction, uh, and circumcision was the sign that God's people carried, the sign that they were the people of God. And it's what, what Paul's basically saying is, remember when you were outsiders. Remember when you were not part of this deal. You were not part of the family. He goes on, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Bleak, bleak, bleak. Remember where you came from. Remember what had to happen. Remember how far you were away. And he reminds him this actually earlier in verse, uh, chapter 1. He, he had alluded to this when he said, he was talking about how, how the, you know, all that God was doing in us. And, and then he makes a, you hear a little bit of distinction. He says, oh, and, and you also were included. This is verse 13, 14 of, of chapter 1, if you want to flip back a couple pages, but don't have to. He says, you also were included. He's talking to these, uh, these Ephesians, these Gentile Christians. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And he's reminding them, you remember, remember what it's like? Remember when you didn't know what God was up to? Remember when you thought there were lots of different gods and you were totally without purpose and you were wondering, what is life all about? Remember that time when you were at work and and a friend began to share with you about this new teaching he had come across about this 
guy named Jesus. Remember that? And you began to hear about Jesus and you began to think and wonder, could it be applicable to your life? And so then eventually you got up the courage to go with this guy to this gathering of people who would meet and they would, they would read letters from guys like Paul and they would read the Old Testament and they'd have a, maybe a story about Jesus and they, would, they were talking about this Jesus like he really changed their lives. And over a series of maybe weeks and months, they began to realize that this word of truth, this message about Jesus was for them. Remember that, he's saying? You were included in Christ when you heard what he had done and you came to believe. And then it says uh, a little further on in, in, in chapter 1, and when you believed, like when you realized, oh, got it, Jesus is the one, I'm going to follow him. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. You received a gift, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance that's to come. He's reminding them of what it was like. And, and now, where they've come. Now, I don't know what that's like for you. For some of you, you follow Jesus for an awfully long time. In fact, you've followed Jesus for so long that some of you have forgotten what it was like to live without Jesus. Without hope. Not knowing when you get up in the morning that God loves you and has a purpose for your life. And you've kind of forgotten that. And, and so it's a great reminder saying, hey, do you remember what it was like? Do you, remember, do you remember what it was like to get up every day and wonder if life had any purpose at all? Do you remember what it was like to chase after all these other things, sex or money or this relationship or that relationship or this job or this career as an effort to, to secure some sort of um, you know, purpose or significance of life? Do you remember what that was like before Jesus? And so it's good for us to remember. Some of us, we don't have to remember very long because it was only last year, maybe six months ago, maybe a few years ago. And we can remember what it was like to live when we didn't know that there was a purpose, when we didn't know that Jesus was for us. Some of us, like me, I was raised in a Christian family. I'm really thankful for that. It was hard for me to remember that. Okay? I was a deep, deep, vile sinner at six years old. I hadn't done much. You know what I'm saying? But when I think about it, I realize I can go back a little further than that. And I can ask myself, oh, but what if? You know, what if uh, this faithful elderly woman in Slave Lake, Alberta, who would gather together these kids, uh, indigenous kids and white trash like us and a bunch of people and we'd get together and she'd gather them in her house and she'd tell them about Jesus. What if she hadn't been faithful? What if my family hadn't got hooked up into that and hadn't discovered life in Christ? And that's where my my parents came back to to Jesus. What would it be like for me? And I can look out at my extended family and see various members of my extended family who are living without hope and without Christ and clueless to the purpose he has for them. And I realize that maybe in them I can see a bit of what it would be like as I realize I have to remember too. Paul wants them to remember. He wants them to really see and really remember what it was like to be on the outside. This is really powerful for those of us who can remember what it was like before Jesus came into our lives. And I wanted to share a quick story, one of the Alpha stories with you. You know I'm a big fan of Alpha. We are big fans of Alpha here at Erickson Covenant Church. And so I dug through this one and I uh, picked a beautiful story here to show and illustrate. We'll turn up the volume because you've got to listen close, but it's a beautiful Scottish accent. So here we go. I worked in retail by day. I was a bouncer by night, but I only really did these jobs to feed my cocaine addiction. The life of a bouncer is very violent and pretty much anything went. I would stand on the door and get abuse after abuse. Uh, the mentality was to 
push each other with a lot of banter and try and be faster or funnier or more aggressive than the next guy. My life became a, a real jump between knocking people out or punching people in the face and waking up in park benches. The violent scene made me take more and more drinking drugs just to kind of stay normal. Um, and then one night I found myself alone and I took an overdose. Um, and I realised that I didn't want to die, so I cried out in prayer. The next day I woke up and didn't want to touch cocaine ever again. I put this down to my own strength and just being a strong character. But then something was different. I kept meeting Christians and in my line of work that was quite strange. And then there was this one woman, Fiona, who worked in the store I worked in and she was a Christian. She openly shared her faith and that made me ask her a lot of questions and I mercilessly tortured her for answers. And she was really, really nice and didn't get angry and handed me a Bible and said I should maybe try reading it. I decided to ask Fiona out because I really started to fall for her. She said no. And then I thought she lived her life by this book, so I should maybe get the answer for why she should go out with me in this book. So I started to read it. And instead, I found a lot of other things. It was at this point that I asked Fiona to take me along to church. When I got to church, I didn't really know what to expect. I'd never been to church before. And um, there was an alpha starting. So I thought, what have I got to lose? So I went along and did the alpha course. It was great to meet so many different people who um, made me feel just so welcome and were just really, really nice. And it really made me start to think about some of the bigger questions in life, like why would God choose to forgive me? Or how could I even possibly remotely become a Christian? As the weeks went on, we got closer and closer and you know, we ate together, we had fun together, we laughed over the discussions and we really started to develop a real sense of family. And it was these people's lives, living out what it meant to be a Christian today, that really spoke to me and really encouraged me to think about things differently. Alpha really turned the questions I had into a belief about God and that God really genuinely cares for me and everyone else. I've changed from a violent, loveless drug addict to a family man who's happily married and just a lover of life. Fiona and I are now married and we've just had a wee baby. I've been running alphas for many different peoples, from gangs to grannies, and I've really seen people's lives change. Every day is an adventure. Man, I can't wait till we start Alpha this fall. Woo! And I'll, uh, yeah, gangs to grannies. There's the scope of Alpha. That's awesome. Hey, we'll post that online. If you had trouble hearing, hearing uh, some of his, a- his accent, you can pick it up on our Facebook page. If we forget where Jesus has brought us from, we'll not really understand where he's taking us all. And so Paul challenged us to know the difference that Jesus has already made so that we can see the difference that he wants to make in us now. And that's what's next. So we get where we've come from. Now we've got to get clear on who we are now. Verse 13. But now. So formerly you were all this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The far off, that referring to the Gentiles, and have been brought near. We're going to see this again. For he, that's Jesus, is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups. Who's he talking about? Both groups. He's talking about Jews 
and everybody else, Jews and Gentiles. That's the both groups he's referring to. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. And there was lots of hostility. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And might reconcile, here it is again, both groups to God in one body through the cross. You see the theme that's developing here? Thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off. He's referring to the people he's writing to. And peace to those who were near. He's referring to the Jews. For through him, Jesus, both of us, both groups, have access in one spirit to the Father. So all that's true. You were outside. You were foreigners. You were aliens. You were strangers. You're way out on the outer fringe. But now, in Jesus, you're in the family. How did that happen? The emphasis that Paul makes through here and through this section is that Jesus came and made peace. He says it four times. There's peace, 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 particularly peace in this one new humanity that has been forged by Jesus on the cross out of the two warring groups. Do you see the emphasis here? What Jesus accomplished on the cross is in reconciling people to each other. That seems to be the primary concern here because these were the two from the Jewish mindset and then within the covenant family, the two sort of primary separations of people was Jew and Gentile. There were other separations, male, female, uh, rich and poor. Those were other segregations that were in society that the gospel also overcame. But the, the, the issue here, the primary thing they're working with here, is the, the, the separation of Jew and Gentile, that, that Jesus has accomplished the reconciling of these groups together. He's done this unprecedented thing of bringing Jew and Gentile into the same family. And that's the emphasis, the reconciliation between people. Now, as Christians, we've long proclaimed that what Jesus did in the cross was that he made reconciliation between us and God. Like he he made things right between us. And that's absolutely true. And we're thankful for it as we understand the forgiveness that God has given us. And he's restored our relationship and he's given us the Holy Spirit. And we now can pray and we now can, can hear from God and we now can follow in his footsteps and we can read his word and and, and we're right with God and that's amazing and that's true. But do you know what this passage is saying? Do Do you hear what it's saying? Jesus died to make us one with each other just as much as he died to make us one with God. You ought to hear that really, really clearly. Jesus died to make us one with each other just as much as he died to make us one with God. And sometimes in history and sometimes in the church, we've forgotten that. We've kind of figured if this is right, then, you know, we kind of live with things being wrong in the other direction. Somehow God will work all that stuff out. This is kind of what we said. Uh, Preston Manning, in a talk that I've heard him give a few times, talks about how, isn't it interesting that we've long proclaimed that we've been reconciled with God. This vertical relationship has been made right. But what we, what we see when we read the, the gospel, when we see the life of Jesus, when we read passages like that, we realize that it's not just the vertical relationship with God that's been made right, it's also the horizontal relationship. And that's the real emphasis in this passage, that Jesus made one new body. 
the horizontal relationship. And then you see the sign I'm making, right? It's the sign of the cross. That not only has our vertical relationship been made right, but so is our horizontal relationship. And the emphasis in this particular passage is really on the horizontal relationship. Why? Because this was the primary struggle of the early church in the first century. Everybody got that God had made them right. You know, in right relationship with him, the spirit had been given. And, and isn't it wonderful that these Gentiles are coming to know Jesus? That's incredible. Everyone kind of got that the, 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 the forgiveness had been given and, 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 and things had been made right. But how can we be the one body of Christ when we're Jews and Gentiles? Like, how is that going to work? And if you read uh, quite a number of the letters that Paul wrote, that's actually in there as one of the primary struggles that these early communities are trying to figure out. What does it mean for us to be the body of Christ? What does it mean for us to be the church when we're a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles? Which I realize is not um, maybe as relevant, or seems like it might not be as relevant for us today in that sense, but the, the, you know, it does get awfully relevant. See, there was lots of pull in that early, those early churches. There was a lot of pull to sort of segregate, to say, Hey, we get it. You guys have got Jesus. Awesome. Stay over there and do your thing. We'll stay over here and do our thing. We'll just kind of bless each other from a distance. But we're not going to potluck together, you know? Because those darn Gentiles are constantly bringing ham sandwiches, and I don't want a ham sandwich. You know what I'm saying? Let's get down to brass tacks. You know, we can't eat together. I can't eat with someone that eats like you. And, 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 and you know, the hostility went both, both ways. And so what it, what, it, what it began to suggest, and there, was, there was movements within the church that sort of supported a um, separate, you know, equal but separate, separate but different kind of, you know, yeah, we're all the one body of Christ, but, you know, let's not get crazy about it. We don't need to gather together. Let's just sort of confess it out loud and then just leave each other to do their thing. And you reach your people, we'll reach ours, and we'll all sort of be happy. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, who was the Jew of Jews, he said, he had one word for that nonsense. Another word too, ridiculous. Crazy. It flies completely in the face of the gospel. There's a great story told over in another letter that Paul wrote of a time when the great apostle Peter, who was like right at the foundation of the church. In fact, it was through Peter that the first Gentiles were really coming into the family. Remember, Peter went out, and this it's a crazy story you can find in the, in the book of Acts. He, he went out, and, and, and just in the middle of preaching, God's spirit was given to these Gentiles, and Peter's convinced, oh my goodness, God is doing something even in these Gentiles. Wow, so he's right there. And, and Peter was significant in the founding of the church, and he's excited about this. And, and what it shows is that you know, he's really beginning to embrace the, the freedom that Christ has, has brought and the one new humanity. This is all happening. But he's out of church potluck. Oh, why, these potlucks, they can be real trouble. He's out of church potluck, and he's eating with a bunch of Gentiles. And I bet you he's enjoying a ham sandwich, too. And in walks some boys from Jerusalem. And Peter sees them from across the room, their eyes locked. And at that moment, Peter feels a bit weird about the fact that he's sitting and eating with these Gentiles. And so he does something that I think a lot of us would have done. He, he, he stood up and probably said his you know, pieces, and, and he left that table, and he went over and sat with his Jewish friends and probably didn't have a ham sandwich, kosher beef or something. When Paul heard about that, he flipped. He went nuts. 
publicly called Peter out in front of the church and said, you are betraying the gospel of Jesus. And you get up from that table and you leave your Gentile brothers and sisters and walk away, you are telling them that they are not part of the body of Christ. You are flying directly in the face of what Jesus did on the cross. You can't do that. We are one new humanity in Christ. He opposed them. Imagine that confrontation. Woo, that would have made for an exciting church meeting. Because it's all about this one new humanity. Jesus came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and you who are near. For through him we both together have access to the Father by one spirit. That oneness that Jesus accomplished is a fact. And it's a fact that we're called to then live out in reality. We're called to make the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished to make it real in our lives and in our world and in our church. That the church is one body. The church is one family. The church is one people. And that's where Paul goes. We'll continue a few more verses. Verse 19. So then, because of all this, consequently, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outsiders. You are citizens with the saints. And also members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles, which is the witness to Jesus, and the prophets, which kind of represents the Old Testament witness to Jesus, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, and then Paul switches to a temple metaphor, a building metaphor. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. He adds to it, and you are also the temple of God. All these are images from the Old Testament about the people, the covenant people of God, which now applies to them, yes, but to them because they are part of this one new humanity that Jesus has fashioned on the cross. There's no longer two sections to God's family. It's one. Our unity is a fact. A fact into which we must live. You see the distinction? We're not called to create unity. We're not called to create and make a unified body. Jesus has already accomplished that. He already did it on the cross. We are called to live out the reality of that unity in our lives. As we love brothers and sisters who are different than us, as we live out the fact, the fact that we are members of God's family. We've often thought that it's our job to unify the body of Christ. It's not. It's a done deal. But like the theme of our whole series, to live lives worthy of the calling we received, I would say in this context, what, what we're being called to do is live Live worthy of the reconciliation that Jesus already accomplished on the cross. That because of what Jesus has done, we have been reconciled to each other so that we can be the healing, reconciling body of Christ in the world. In a world that desperately needs to have relationships made right. To have healing offered to the hurting. To have broken and, and people who are far, far away and on the outside included in the family. And the fact is, Jesus can't do what he wants to do to a body that continues to prop up divisions. Let's get super practical about this as we close. My question for you is this. What relationship in your life, in our lives, is at odds 
with the reconciliation that Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. What relationship or relationships are at odds with that? Because nothing will kill the mission of Jesus faster than unresolved relationships. Infighting about doctrine that's not essential. Holding on to unforgiveness. Failing to tell the truth to one another in love. Propping up racial prejudice, either within the local church or um, in you know, a larger global setting. Falling into the trap of power games or hierarchy or of an us and them mentality. Looking down on others, uh, propping up economic prejudice or, or just an unwillingness to resolve a simple misunderstanding. Unwillingness to step into conflict for the sake of loving each other. Nothing will kill the mission of Jesus faster than, than gossip. Than not actually going to each other with our issues, but going to others with them. Anything that makes divisions where Jesus has created a unity, the fact that he's made us one new humanity is sin. It reminds me of the old verse that we often would read at marriages. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And that's true of the body of Christ. But God has joined us together. How dare we not live in to that reality? So one of the reasons why we created, as an as a Erickson Covenant community, we created a behavioral covenant. Because we realized, and if you've been hanging around with church for any amount of time, you know Christians can fight. Some of them dirty. We want to fight. We want to fight clean. We want to fight good. We want, to, we want to embrace conflict in a godly way. We don't want to avoid conflict as a church. Because conflict's inevitable. We want to use conflict to nurture real relationships, to nurture forgiving attitudes, to nurture deeper character, to get on with the mission of Christ. And so we, we developed this, this behavioral covenant, and there was a, quite a group of us years ago that worked on this, that root, deeply rooted in Scripture, we covenanted together to be the kind of church that fully accepts each other as Christ has accepted us intentionally believe the best in each other, listen wholeheartedly and patiently, communicate with clarity, compassion, and truth, use words that honor each other and build each other up, forgive each other and ourselves, understanding and accepting our capacity to make mistakes, and be humble in all that we say and do. And we as a, as a covenant community made this covenant together to say this is how we're going to live. And we need to continue to practice that. It's easy to say these things when everything's awesome. It's harder to live into them when there's actually been some hurt or some misunderstanding. If you're interested in exploring this more, on March the 6th, 2016? Yes. How do I remember that date? Because it was the first day we met as two services. I preached a sermon just on this, and if you want to explore that further, I encourage you to dig back into our archives online and, and, and listen to it. But making a covenant together to say, we're going to be the kind of people that live out the reconciliation of Christ. That he has accomplished for us. Just one simple way that we are pointing toward the greater truth. That in order for us to make reconciliation real out there, which is the mission. To make the reconciliation of Jesus real in people's lives. In order for that to happen, we've got to make reconciliation real here. We've got to live that out here. Because Jesus can't bring forgiveness to the world through a people who are unwilling to forgive each other. Jesus can't bring the nations together under him through people who continue to prop up racial prejudice or systemic injustice or ignore it altogether. 
Jesus can't lift up the poor and then set them at the table of his father through people who won't even cross the room to shake hands with someone identified as perhaps poor and needy. The central verse to this whole message today is that Jesus had a purpose to create in himself one new humanity. He did it by dying on the cross. We make Jesus super famous by making that reconciliation real in our lives so that we can make it real in the world. So what do you need to do to make that relationship right? Whatever relationship that is that you've identified in your own family, in this church, maybe in one of the other churches in this town. What do you need to do to make that relationship right? You need to confess. Do you need to uh, seek that person out, speak the truth in love? Do you need to tell them that you were hurt? Do you need to offer forgiveness? You don't want to gossip about it, but maybe you need to get some good help. What I mean by that is not talking to ten of your friends, but finding one friend, confidential friend, you can pray with to help you understand and discern how you might make that relationship right. How will you do that? Maybe it's right here in this congregation that you felt slighted, ignored, hurt, or misunderstood. And you realize today that there's something within you that suggests that that relationship, maybe you're ticked off with me. Anyone? With every eye closed and every head bowed? No. We could deal with this right now. Maybe that's it. No, I'm being serious though. Maybe you're ticked off with me. Maybe, maybe you're ticked off that I ask for money all the time. I, I don't know. Whatever it is, come and talk to me. Jesus told us how to deal with conflict. We deal with it by talking to each other in love, by seeking to resolve. Why? Not so that we can make unity, but so that we can live out our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ.